Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. There's our 10 minute lesson series, which aims to educate and inform listeners on particular areas of policy, giving brief overview somewhere in the range of eight to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people really need to know. There's our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to the most, most important presentations of past events. And there's our interview series. So today is one of those. In May, Social Justice Ireland submitted our 10-point plan to deliver housing for all as part of the government's anticipated new housing strategy. Our proposals move away from housing as a commodity towards housing as a home, addressing deficits in homeless prevention and supports, looking at the necessary increases in social housing provision, looking at affordable housing, strengthening the private rented sector and ensuring that housing developments are providing for sustainable communities. We need to return to housing as a social good, an essential component of ensuring a decent standard of living. So in this episode, my friend and colleague Colette Bennett, who's economic and social analyst with Social Sound, will discuss the 10-point plan in detail, exploring the data and the reasoning behind our proposals. We hope you enjoy it. In this podcast episode, we are going to, I suppose, pick apart our 10-point plan to deliver housing for all. So, Colette, can you just give the frame where this 10-point plan, what the impetus for it was? Yeah, so thankfully, um, Rebuilding Ireland looks set to be defunct. So that's the the previous government's um, housing strategy. And under the programme for government, this government uh, committed to producing a new housing strategy called Housing for All. So we made our submission um, on that basis to the Department of Housing to set out what is essentially, as you say, 10 points that would actually deliver that, that would would properly deliver housing for all. Um, And the way that we did it is to look at what was done in rebuilding Ireland. So if you look at the five pillars of rebuilding Ireland, it actually does give a very comprehensive structure if the policy underneath that structure was actually valuable. Um, So, you know, it looks at uh, eliminating homelessness. It talks about increasing the supply of, of housing. It talks about increasing the supply of social housing. It talks about, you know, making the private rented sector actually function properly. Um, and then it talks about using existing um, housing. So, you know, bringing local authority voids back into use um, and bringing vacant properties online. So, you know, whether used for, for private rent or for social housing. Unfortunately, you know, the targets themselves weren't really ambitious in terms of what it wanted to do. Um, so, for example, you know, one of the build targets in it was the construction of 25,000 homes. And there was some confusion even at, at that as to whether or not that meant 25,000 um, on average every year or at least 25,000, because depending on who the minister was speaking to, and and that would have been Minister O'Murphy at the time, um, the language changed around that. But we know from research that has been done um, by various different bodies, including the SRI um, and the Housing Agency, that there is a need every year to take account of demographic change and um, 
and obsolescence, that there's a need for uh, between 30 and 35,000 homes um, every year. And that's before you get to dealing with the legacy of, you know, not having built during the, the crash. Um, so, you know, the, the, the ambition wasn't there in the targets for rebuilding Ireland. So we're, we're glad to see that the, the, the department is formulating a new one. Um, we also did a review of rebuilding Ireland uh, back in 2019, presented it at our, our annual social policy conference. And under each of the five pillars, the government had failed to meet even those unambitious targets. Um, so we had actually seen a, a quite a spike in homelessness between July 2016 and 2019, as, as, as it was. Um, we had seen, you know, they missed their targets again and again in terms of bills of local authority housing. Interestingly, um, in terms of the housing assistance payment and the acquisitions on social housing, they actually exceeded targets, which essentially just meant that, that government was paying more um, for, for social housing or to, to home people who needed social housing um, than if they'd actually built themselves. Um, we had seen, you know, in terms of affordable housing and the construction of affordable housing, uh, that a lot of what was considered affordable was outside the reach of, of many households, even if they were using the template that the government seems committed to for some reason of two earner um, full-time worker households not taking into account any kind of family expenses or where you know one partner may not or even single uh, person households um we saw in relation to rent that rent increases were not anywhere near in line with uh, increases in um in in incomes between 2016 and 2019 um you know it was multiples of the the proportionate uh, increase um, and then in terms of voids and vacants while voids were being returned to use um again there was kind of data issues around what was being reported and what wasn't being reported so in addition to looking at what needed to be done under each of those headings for our 10-point plan we also included um, the need to get data right that's the important thing as you said is that it, how a, a target can't be realistic if the data behind it doesn't even begin to capture the, the real size of, of the issue and as you were saying it's based on the five pillars so the first pillar in uh, rebuilding Ireland is to address homelessness and our first policy proposal then is directly linked with homelessness and it's about expanding that housing force model which is currently geared towards generally the, the single adult maybe with with extra needs that it would be expanded out to include families and provide the wraparound services and supports that children and parents who have experienced homelessness would need why is this important why why do families need this surely if they have somewhere to move into that's safe and secure and sustainable that's fine you know job done so why 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 are we arguing for housing force for families Okay, well, first of all, um, in terms of, you know, 
um, families in emergency accommodation, it's not safe, secure or sustainable, um, even if they're in family hubs. I mean, family hubs is not and should not be a long term solution. I mean, when they came in, in you know, they were introduced as a policy in February 2017 and the um, Human Rights and Equality Commission almost immediately published um, a policy paper on it. I think it was in, in, if I'm not mistaken, it was June or July of the same year, saying that it risked institutionalizing uh, family homelessness. And that is ex exactly what has happened. Uh, the Ombudsman for Children published a, an absolutely damning report in, um, God, it was early uh, 2019. Um, and it talked about, you know, children in family hub accommodation who were, you know, were displaying signs of, of suicidal ideation um, and as young as, as five years old. And there's one um, there's one story in that or case study in that 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 really stuck out for me um, as a girl called Hannah. She's eight. And when her mum goes to the shower, she stands by the bedroom door so that her five year old brother can't escape because he has um, expressed a desire to throw himself out the window. So, you know, no eight year old feel that weight of responsibility. No five year old should feel that that is their only option and that they don't have, you know, a childhood and opportunity ahead of them. Um, so, you know, when we looked at, at, at homelessness for this 10 point plan, we looked at it from the, the perspective of both those who are in homelessness and also preventing homelessness. So the first one, as you say, was to expand housing first to, to families and, and providing that wraparound services. And as you said, housing first essentially is for, for single adults with additional needs, whether that be addiction or, or mental illness. Um, so recognizing that children in emergency accommodation may well have additional needs. And there have been reports from various different service providers. Um, and there, there was one from Novas in Limerick uh, back again in, in 2019, where children presenting to them for food were having difficulty in chewing and swallowing um, because their parents were trying to provide them with nutritious food and it was coming out of packages. Now, I know from my own kids that I have used those, those packages myself um, and they're great if they're, you know, you're on the go, whatever, um, that there's something you can just kind of handily have and it's meant to have some sort of nutritional basis to it. But it isn't a long term um, meal supplement for every single meal. And certainly the ones that are the handiest to use are the ones you, if you're if you think about emergency accommodation, the ones you don't have to heat up. So they tend to be kind of the, the mushy vegetables and the mushy um, purees of, of fruits and things. So that meant that children weren't getting the what they needed in terms of learning how to develop their mouth and their jaw and their tongue to to eat. So you go through that process and like, you, you know, you have a child, you know, the the weaning process from milk to puree to slightly lumpier to regular food. Um, it's a slow go. It's you're, you're looking at a good kind of year and a half, two years. Um, and you do that to allow the tongue and the jaw to develop. And that in turn then develops their their speech. Um, so all of that is connected. So, so there are children experiencing homelessness who are not developing in that way. There was another report um, from the Royal College of Pediatricians um, 
again, the end of 2019, that talked about um, children experiencing difficulty in terms of their, their motor skills. So, you know, trying to crawl or walk, they were experiencing delays because they just didn't have the room. Um, and that's before you get into children trying to do their homework in bathrooms or in communal spaces, in family hubs, um, you know, and, and, and all of those things have been exacerbated by COVID, obviously, um, because people have nowhere else to go. So what we are calling for is the expansion of get the house done first, get the house provided first, and then provide those psychosocial supports. Um, the parents may well need some level of support in terms of their own mental health and their own well-being. And then also in terms of, of children um, who need supports, again, developmental supports, speech therapies, um, you know, and, and social service supports there. Uh, so that would be, you know, on the, the kind of, I suppose, the dealing with the consequences side. But in looking at the causes, um, we also look at, you know, the high rate and the legacy rate of mortgage arrears. So we know, for example, that 92% of all arrears outstanding um, is owed by people who are in longer term mortgage arrears. So those who are experiencing arrears um, of a, a year or more. Um, so what we're saying is acquire an equity stake in properties in mortgage distress, leave the families where they are, um, and then that in turn may well increase the, the state's housing stock. Um, so we know, again, you know, that there's, there's a, a large number of families in that situation who have suffered uh, from a, a loss of income, um, who are experiencing mortgage arrears and all the stress that comes with that. Um, you know, for example, like there's, there's 30,000 or over 30,000 households in that position. Uh, so what we're saying is to support them by uh, the, having the state buy out some of that equity um, and allow them to, to remain in their home, whether as a, a tenant in full or, you know, alongside a shared ownership with the state. The state has no problem. Um, this equity kind of stake, we've seen that with the affordable housing bill that's currently going through the Oireachtas where the state wants to, you know, hold that equity or provide an equity loan in newly built properties. Um, which, you know, is only going to uh, disproportionately benefit those who are on higher incomes and it's going to maintain artificially high house prices. Uh, we've seen the very same thing uh, apply with the help to buy scheme, for example. Um, so what we're saying is rather than looking at that, rather than building in a, an equity system um, that, that is going to do that, that's going to have those negative policy outcomes, why not use that equity idea to, to support people who actually genuinely need it and who are struggling? Families moving from emergency accommodation into long-term secure, either social housing or supported private rental housing, that, that was the point of that that job isn't finished then, that they do need those wraparound supports when they move from homelessness accommodation into hopefully some sort of forever home that that you know that they still need ongoing supports to transition from the damage that's been done whilst homeless and then absolutely like there was a piece of research done in Canada and they've had housing first for for a long time um again in relation to to homeless adults but what they found was that children who experienced 
uh, sorry, adults who experienced homelessness as children um, were still more likely to, to have precarious housing situations as adults. So this is something that leaves an imprint. It's something that stays. Um, and, you know, you really want to avoid that. Like we made a we made a commitment to children in the 1919 declaration um, and we still haven't met that. So, you know, it's, it's about safeguarding. We're going to lose a generation um, to homelessness if we don't build in these wraparound services, if we don't catch this early enough. And there's research from the UK which says that one of the clearest indicators, because their argument was that for a lot of the time, the rhetoric is, you know, most of us are two paychecks away from homelessness, so it could happen to anybody. And what they were saying was, oh, well, actually, childhood poverty is one of the clearest indicators of the possibility of becoming homeless later in life. So a homeless child is living in poverty if their parents don't earn enough to be able to provide within the market as it currently stands. So that also increases the risk again of these children being damaged by the system as, as they move through it. So the housing, um, the housing force thing is, is really vital. I think that all of those supports were there. And in terms of, I suppose, of the equity stake in mortgages, as you said, the system is already in place where an equity stake is part of the current conversation anyway, that the government would own part of your home in some shape or form or all of it and rent it back to you. I mean, we already have mortgage to rent. So how come that's not hoovering up all of these 30,000 mortgages in late stage arrears? Because it's not working. Like it's an absolute disaster. Um, you know, and it was reviewed back in 2017. And even the improvements that were made at that stage haven't seen an, um, any sort of major increase in, in mortgage to rent. The local authorities don't want a lot of these properties because A, they can't afford them. Um, and B, they, you know, they're, they're in areas that may not be manageable or, you know, there's, like that the, there there are certainly the reasons that were coming back in in the review and then on the other side in terms of the households who are living in the properties they may be above the income threshold they may be over accommodated because they have too many rooms um they may um you know they, they may not be in negative equity there's a whole rake of reasons why it won't work for them um and what we're saying is you know it, while that's there and it may work for some people, but the data is saying it's working for very few, mm -hmm. um, we need something else. We need to start thinking around this. I mean, you only had to, to look at what happened when the government um, announced a couple of weeks ago that they were going to change the stamp duty rules for uh, sorry, institutions that could buy 10 properties or more. Home for Life, a government-backed private equity approved housing body, um, masquerading as approved housing body realistically, uh, they immediately said they may have to pull 200 mortgage to rent schemes, 200 that were in the pipeline. So for those people who have done the rounds, and it's, it generally takes about two years to go through the entire process, for those households that have done all of that, to can see the, the finish line in the end, um, to have it pulled on a whim is just 
outrageous and it just shows again the policy deficiencies around mortgage to rent um and around the fact that you know again we rely on private finance houses for so much of our our housing um and particularly around social housing so you know it it hasn't worked it isn't working we need a different solution to coincide with it um, and i think the equity stake because again as you said the template is there so you know use that and you're absolutely right in terms of, of childhood poverty. I mean, you only have to look at the poverty data that, that looks at the correlation between, you know, poverty and education. And then you look at the correlation between education and income earnings. Um, you know, and it, it's like it's no wonder that children who experience poverty go on to have a lower quality of life than those who don't. And that will lead me nicely into pillar two, which is to accelerate social housing. Social housing is key, I think, to to to, to really to, to move us forward from where we are because it does allow low-income households, it allows households who can't and don't earn enough to be able to provide within the private market because the private market is profit geared towards profit if you can afford a thousand euro this month for your rent but somebody else can afford 1200 you're out and they're in so there'll always be a cohort of people who can't can't exist in that system so the social housing aspect of it is really 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 vital to ensure that that would go a huge way i think to eradicating poverty because if you have a safe secure stable affordable roof over your head that you know you can go to bed safe in the morning you decide who opens the door you decide who comes in every your stuff is safe and secure inside it's where you grow and develop that in terms then of income i mean obviously income inadequacy is, is an issue but if you're if you're housing was safe and secure and provided for you by the state with you know a subsidy for the rent that would go a long way to ensuring that we don't see a repeat of what we've had over the last 10 or 15 years so we have three policy proposals that sit within the accelerating the social housing part of it the first one is to build 14,341 social homes each year for the next um, 10 years at an annual investment of 3.3 billion. 14,341 is a very specific number, <laughs> did we round up or round down? How did we arrive at such, a, such an exact figure? <laughs> um, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I, I look at it and I think, should we have gone for broke and gone for 15,000? But because we are evidence based, you know, it's important to get the data right. Um, and I'm sure we will have that, that discussion about data in a while. Um, yeah, I mean, what it came from was effectively we have a target, um, as in Social Justice Ireland, have proposed a target of 20,000, or sorry, 20% 20 um, of all housing stock to be social housing within the next 10 years. Um, so what that would mean is, is essentially a doubling of what we have. We're currently between eight and 9%. Um, but other European countries that we would like to emulate, they're in that 20% that bracket, and even if not more so. Um, so in order to do that, we looked at what we had, 
plus what we might be able to achieve if the government took on the proposal in relation to the equity stake and then what was left over divided by 10 years, mm. essentially. Um, so in order to do that, though, it's it's quite expensive. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it would take an annual investment of, of 3.3 billion, which is the housing budget, uh, the full housing budget, um, you know, of last year. So you're looking at slightly more, actually. So you're you're looking at essentially doubling the housing budget to do that. And very helpfully, the SRI came out last week um, with their their proposal to government that that government borrow um, to really increase the proportion of, of social housing. We can borrow now at historically low interest rates. And once you can service the debt, then that's what we should be doing. Um, so certainly that that's that's where it came from and why um, and how we might might achieve it. Um, the other proposals, as you say, you know, there are two others prohibiting the sale of state lands that are suitable for residential development and using that land to build social housing. Um, so, again, you know, we see these absolutely bizarre uh, turns of events where we sell a, a piece of state land to a private developer. They develop it out. Um, and then we buy back the housing at an inflated cost. So rather than do that, the, the state should be contracting developers to do it. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the workers in the local authority that aren't going out with a shovel to build these houses themselves. They will, of course, require um, builders to do it, but they should be the ones in charge of managing that. Um, and actually building out the, the land. There was a review done back in 2014 um, of the zoned land that would be available uh, across the, the state entities. And what it found was over 414,000 homes could be built on state lands. What we're suggesting is a fraction of that over the next 10 years. Um, so, you know, that that's what where we would be in terms of like the, the vast majority of the cost that's associated with properties is on the, the site underneath them. Uh, so if we have the site, then the building costs aren't that expensive. Um, you know, again, like the, the go-to model is always the Okulon one. They have A-rated homes that they sell for 230000 up to 250000 And they do that because they got state lands at a very, very low cost. Um, so if they can do it, why can't we? Um, so, and then the last one was to ensure that approved housing bodies or AHBs retain their housing stock as social housing um, and for those who may wish to sell to prohibit their sale on the private market. So essentially what that, that entails is, so we've seen kind of a, a variety of, of AHBs coming online um, in the last while. And in fact, I myself have actually, have actually received emails um, from investment houses and, and real estate agents asking me to invest in social housing um, vehicles because it's a guaranteed investment a guaranteed return so rather than going down that line and again we talked about you know home for life um the, the private equity backed approved housing body and the disaster that happened there um you know rather than allowing those housing bodies who are in finance uh, agreements with the local authorities of for 25 to 30 years after that period, their 
they're open to sell that. They're absolutely free to do whatever they want with those properties. They can go from having a differential rent from a social housing tenant to having a mark, market rent from a private tenant um, and all subsidised by the state. So that should be prohibited. Um, we also know that there are housing bodies who may cater to a particular demographic. They may cater to older people or, or people living with disabilities. And if they have older housing stock, they may want to sell that or to upgrade that. So, you know, if you've got, got housing for older people that doesn't have, have lifts, that's, you know, reliant on stairs, you may need to upgrade your stock. So you may want to sell what you have in order to upgrade that. So what we're saying is there's no prohibition in actually selling it. You can do that, but you have to sell it within the, the social housing um, units, the, the social housing providers. So whether that be another approved housing body or back to a local authority um, to keep that kind of 20 percent target going so that it, it doesn't kind of fall into obsolescence. And it's amazing how quickly the conversation turns that, you know, we're being encouraged now to think of not so much social housing and building housing as a cost to society, but as an investment. And then just how quickly that moves from an investment then into an investment vehicle. So it, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's been done very, very, very quickly that it, this is now, housing is now a way of... Um, providing for your pension and providing for your your the return on your investment as you move forward but I think COVID has really shown that when a government takes an issue seriously all previous constitutional blocks all previous legislative blocks were just you know uh, finance everything was pushed to one side so this is possible this can be done Absolutely. Absolutely. When the political will is there, this can be done. Can be done. We, the, money, the money can be found. I mean, again, the rhetoric at the moment is that the, the, the cost of materials is increasing. The cost of labour is increasing. But I don't think that that would double the cost of a, a cool on house from 230 to 460. You know, that sort of way, if timber has increased in price and concrete and steel, it, it isn't it hasn't doubled you know and I know that the, the waiting lists are longer but it's still it is still possible to build affordable and genuinely affordable housing on state land and to build social housing on state land if the political will was there and pillar three then is to build more homes in general and to deliver more homes at an affordable price which I don't know about you or anybody who's listening, but I don't see how 460,000 could possibly be deemed as affordable for anybody, regardless of what wage you're on. If the median wage is what, 38,000 euro a year? Mm, around that, yeah. Something like that. So even if there's two of you, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So policy six is for us to address housing affordability on the supply side rather than investing in demand side schemes that artificially maintain high house prices. So it's that thing of looking at housing costs forced and building truly affordable homes. Um, and then the next one then will be to close all tax loopholes for large scale investment vehicles, which is very timely. Um, can you just maybe expand on both of those for me? Yeah, so in terms of the, the housing affordability side, you know, and again, 
we're we've all this kind of affordable housing bill going through the Oireachtas at the moment, and what that's based on, what the affordability is based on, is the state providing equity. So it's actually not about re- making homes any more affordable. It's about artificially boosting the incomes or the savings of uh, buyers. Um, but what you have to remember is these are buyers who have already managed to, to make their 10% deposit because in order to get that equity stake, um, you have to get a loan. You have to get a loan on the basis of whatever your income is and provide your 10% deposit. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just a really skewed system. But in, in looking at that and, and the um, Oireachtas Information Service or Research Service, sorry, did a really good spotlight publication um, on affordability a while back. And it quoted um, an AIB report around the fact that, you know, affordability was a real issue and that while it would obviously be preferable to do something on the supply side, it's too difficult so demand-side subsidies were preferable. That's acknowledging the fact that this is, is promoting you know, an unaffordable and unsustainable housing sector. Obviously, you know, looking at the supply side is the issue. And we do hear that narrative that you know, it's, it's about margins and there's, you know, with COVID, there's been supply chain issues and all of those things. But if you look at the work of the likes of Orla Hegarty and Mel Reynolds that have been in this space for a long time, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that are professionals in this space working in that sector, um, you know, it's just that their evidence, their data doesn't back that up at all. So, you know, looking at, at procurement processes and making procurement much better and much more efficient um, would actually help bring down housing costs. Having policies that limit um, profit or, you know, certainly in terms of things like windfall gains taxes, um, that would be another uh, proposal we would have on, on ta- when we talk about taxation, um, you know, that that would also make sure that we don't have this constant land speculation, that we are looking to to deal on the supply side rather than the the demand side subsidies. So things like help to buy um, that, as I've already said, has been proven, has been proven by the Parliamentary Budgets Office, has been proven by our own research when we have compared the data from um, the residential tenants, or sorry, not the residential tenants, it's the um, property register and the the data published by revenue on the health to buy scheme. Um, we see that, that you know, the, the vast majority of what's going under the health to buy is over um, the, the kind of general population. It's, it's higher. It's paying for much more expensive homes, uh, which means that it's, it's providing subsidies for people with much higher incomes, um, because again, they're able to support their mortgages, they're able to support their deposit. Um, the very same people are being targeted um, by the affordable housing schemes. And as you say, 460,000 is not affordable. It's not affordable to many couples, uh, but it certainly isn't affordable to single households, uh, single person households. So looking at that is an absolute must. Uh, similarly, in relation to closing tax loopholes for, for the kind of REITs, the large scale investment vehicles, 
there was some work done on this in budget 2020. Um, so, you know, it only took six years from the time that the finance bill brought them in um, in 2014 for the Department of Finance to say, oh, actually, hang on a second, um, there seems to be something wrong here on the tax side and they seem to be getting quite a lot of tax expenditures. Um, so they did do some work in closing that down, but they haven't done enough. And the knee-jerk reaction a couple of weeks ago um, by government in terms of, you know, buildings or sorry, investment vehicles that are buying building, 10 buildings or more um, will get an increase in stamp duty. We've already seen that had an issue uh, that created issues for people who were in the mortgage to rent space uh, with Home for Life. We, but we also had this bizarre thing of, well, you know, it won't apply, it'll only apply to houses, it won't apply to apartments. It may not apply to urban centres because they're only investment vehicles anyway, which is basically acknowledging that policy is pushing people out of town centres and making it completely unaffordable. Like that has now become a policy um, rather than trying to have vibrant cities and vibrant communities and livable spaces. Um, so we would look for a, a larger scale lockdown of, of those tax loopholes to try and, and create a space where people can actually afford to live where they want to live as opposed to on the outskirts or in commuter belts um you know and again that has environmental uh, repercussions as well because we then see more cars on the road um and more emissions that's it it's it, it, these policies seem to be at odds with each other. So now the focus does seem to be bringing people back into city centres. Now that tourists are gone, now that people, you know, it's, it's only with, we're back out of our 5Ks, thankfully. But you can see it in, in things like Dublin city centre where there was so much reliance on, on tourism and tourists to feed the city, to come into the city and spend their money nobody lives in the city anymore that that there's actually nobody in the city so as you said if you're kind of pushing people out to the suburbs all the time but it's it's about renting then I suppose which is what these real estate investment trusts that that's their big business is in rental and um, properties and pillar four then was to improve the rental sector and we have two policy proposals here which would be looking to improve the lot of people in the private rented sector. And the first one then was about property inspections. Now the figures on this, I, I remember having to look at them maybe two or three times because I thought, oh, that's upside down. <laughs> when they went in to look at uh, rental properties that were inspected, 93% were not compliant with the regulations. That's yeah. ordinary. It is, it's incredible. I mean, you know, I suppose, like you talked about there, the, the, the kind of push to create rental spaces by, by REITs. And I, I saw a quote, um, and I don't know who it's attributed to, um, but it's it's about, you know, we're, we're housing our tourists in homes mm. and we're housing our people in hotels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just insanity. Um, in terms of, you know, how, like, Rent is part and parcel and has been part and parcel for a long, long time. Um, you know, it's only in the last maybe two decades that it has really spiked in terms of becoming a, a longer term home for people. And we're nowhere near 
you know, that, that kind of capacity they have on the continent where they have long term leasing, um, you know, to, to actually have uh, long term homes on the rental sector. But, you know, with, with some for some people, that may be exactly what they want. So we need to look at, at you know, in, in protections and introducing those longer term leases to secure that. Um, but those long term leases, and again, you know, there's a lot to be said around the affordability of rent as well. Um, but those those long term leases also need to be somewhere you might want to actually live. So, you know, that's why we're talking about investing in, in property inspections. Now, you know, we've gone from around 7% of all rental accommodation being inspected to the lofty heights of 10%. Um, and of that 10%, as you say, you know, it's in the 90s consistently. Mm. Some local authority areas, it's 100% that are non-compliant. And it's only a very, very small proportion that are brought back into compliance within the year. So, you know, what we need is more enforcement around properties that are non-compliant with the, the regulations. Like these are people's lives. You can't have people. And like, I mean, you know, we, we always say, you know, you can't have children growing up in because, you know, it's, it's, it's more emotive to talk about kids growing up with mold on the walls and, you know, bits falling down. But you can't have anybody, anybody in accommodation where there's there's black mold growing on the walls. Like I've seen buildings where there's mushrooms growing out of walls. Like that's that is an outrageous health hazard. Um, where you've got really poor ventilation, and again, student accommodation and purpose-built rental accommodation was you know the regulations were changed in relation to to that. To, to those building standards where, you know, where once you would have um, kind of windows at 90 degree angles to allow for, for ventilation, that was stopped. Um, so you've got these apartments that are purpose built for rent that don't actually have, by design, don't have proper ventilation. Um, and we've seen how important good ventilation is a pandemic, an airborne pandemic. Um, so, you know, there should be, there has to be enforcement around that. There has to be an increase in property inspections. They have to be properly enforced. And then on the flip side of that, we need to increase the, the legislation to support tenants. Um, you know, in terms of things like rental deposits, there was legislation introduced back in 2015. And the bit around the deposit retention or deposit protection um, bit, sorry, uh, wasn't commenced. So there's legislation on the books. Uh, a lot of the rest of the provisions within that, that act have actually been enacted, but that hasn't been commenced. So, you know, we see spurious claims. And if you go to the RTB website, you can look at the enforcements and, and the claim notices um, around their complaints with their annual reports. Um, but, you know, we've seen spurious claims and people, landlords retaining deposits uh, for for tiny things or deducting repairs from deposits which you're not allowed to do um so you know that needs to be be strengthened um but we also need you know to, to look at things like long-term leasing we need to remove um i think it's section 20 or 34 in relation to uh being able to to just evict uh, for no reason at all, really, or because you want a family member to move in or because you're doing 
um, works on the house. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that tenants' rights are protected and that they have that right to a home. For me, the extraordinary part is that you can have a conversation that talks about 93% of private rented accommodation not being up to a standard. And at the same time, look at the data which shows that rents are at an extraordinarily high rate. So you're kind of going to be paying all of this money and still living in substandard accommodation. I just find that that really grates me. I'm not saying that if you were paying next to nothing, you should be, you know, you should be accepting living in substandard accommodation, but to be paying such levels of high rates and rents and still living in substandard and not being able to find something that may be up to standard despite the high rents, I just think is, is absolutely extraordinary. And that sort of, um, that ventilation piece as well. I mean, as you were saying, like that there's not even an obligation, I don't think, to have windows. I think only only one side of the property, only one That's right, yeah. wall has to have windows, which again can't can't be good for the, the mental or physical health anymore. Um, but it's that security of tenure piece as well. I think I don't know if I would have been in such a major rush to even buy a property if I had known that if I had found somewhere nice to rent that was affordable and I was secure there and I knew that I could stay there as long as I wanted to why would I be getting myself tied up in boiler repairs and <laughs> you know windows and you know what I mean so it, it, it would take the pressure off I even think the, the the retail market if you knew that you could rent somewhere and you were safe and secure in that space that would I think that would go a, a long way as well um, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's 93 percent of the properties haven't been inspected. So it's and then of those who have been expected, inspected. So that 10 percent, um, it's, it's around 93 percent of those you know, up to the 100 um, percent that are found non-compliant. Absolutely. Um, but it's you know, it, it is around providing somewhere safe and secure to live. Like you you were talking about that kind of feeling of closing the door behind you and having somewhere that's safe somewhere that you can go to bed you can lock the door and it's your you know it's it's your space but you're not going to have it, it taken away from you at a whim um, and I think that's really really important and it was really important again you know in relation to the pandemic it was really important to have somewhere to self-isolate it was really important to be able to social distance it was really important to have proper sanitary facilities to be able to wash your hands um, and all of those things just again highlighted how important the home is to your mental and physical well-being. But even just to be able at the end of a bad day to close the door and breathe, um, you know, to be able to, to raise a family in somewhere that's safe and secure for them, that they're not hiding behind the couch when the landlord comes. Um, that, you know, that's that's really important because again, it it creates that safe space, it, it supports that mental health. Um, so it's and then, you know, on the other side, like at the other end of the kind of age spectrum to to know as you retire and that you, you know, that you face a loss of income, that you have that security um, that you, you know, that you're not going to be kicked out in your 60s and your 70s, um, that you've got that, on, you know, that 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 safety net there um, with that provision of a long term lease that is affordable to you 
Um, so, you know, that because we do see from the census data, and I'll be really interested to see when it's published again next year, mm-hmm. um, because obviously there were delays due to COVID. So it's, it's, it's looking to be published kind of the second quarter, I think, of next year. Um, just the, the increase again in the proportion of people in, you know, mid to older age who are renting because before we would have, it would have been a guarantee, you owned your own home. Um, and there's a very high proportion of people in their 60s and 70s and 80s who do own their own home, but that proportion is decreasing. So it would be interesting to see what proportion is, is in the private rented sector with the next census. Um, and that again, that speaks to, you know, what, what are we looking for as a society? Um, you know, how, it's going to come down to how adequate is our pension provision when we pay a private rent or how adequate is our housing support system. And then you're at odds then because your pension is probably being paid into a a REIT somewhere. (laughs) So you actually need you need uh, you need the rents to go up to make sure that your pension is being paid at some stage if you know if it's invested into a um, a property investment you know they kind of you're trying to square that circle but I just think as well that that whole thing of um of as you said what kind of society are we are we looking to make and, and we do make it by the decisions we make so even things like you know all the talk of the environment and are you really going to be bothered about sorting out your soft plastics from your hard plastics when you've spent your entire day trying to source emergency accommodation that night or when you know I mean the, 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 your community and your environment and the, the none of that really exists if you don't have breathing space and you don't have a base I think so it, everything emanates from that and to go back as you said about the the piece that's kind of coming down the line I read somewhere this morning from a report on youth homelessness that in the UK in the next 30 years, they estimate that there could be well over half a million people who will, as they age and in private rented accommodation are facing into homelessness because there is nowhere for them to go. That's a, I mean, I know as a proportion of the UK population, it might be quite small, but it's still 600,000 people that they estimate don't have somewhere to go over the next 30 years as they age and as they retire and as they fall through that net from the, the private rented sector. Um, which would lead me then to my last one. So pillar five is to utilize existing housing. And that would be, yeah, as you said, go back to the last census, there was 183,000 vacant properties not including uh, holiday homes and when you kind of look to see where they are and, and how and I noticed the local property tax update that they're looking to add a vacant home piece to that so it'll be interesting to see where that leaves us but to overall our policy proposal is to invest in the services and interest infrastructure to support housing developments with particular focus on social housing developments. I and mean, that's really what we would like to see over the next, I mean, ideally in the next three months, <laughs> just get it sorted, but it is gonna take time. We know we appreciate that, but as I keep saying as well, the decisions that were made 10 and 15 years ago are bearing fruit now. We are where we are because of a shift in policy decades ago. We need to start now to ensure 
that children being born probably as we speak in maternity hospitals around the country aren't ever, 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 ever going to have to face into any kind of period of a homelessness or housing insecurity. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there has been some improvement in terms of local authority voids um, in the last year, you know, and, and in, in 2019, for example, uh, over 3000 properties were, were re-tenanted. So, you know, there there is some good work happening in terms of utilising. But when it comes to um, those vacant properties and, you know, as you say, the last census has it at over 183,000 excluding holiday homes, um, very little has been done. Now, interestingly, the Department of Rural and Community Development back in ooh, uh, 2019, possibly, um, they did a, a, a kind of a very brief piece of research in relation to, you know, trying to, to get some of those uh, vacant properties into use. Um, and what they found was it was actually very difficult to find people, to find the owners. Uh, where they did, many of the owners were um, nursing home residents. So, you know, they're probably already, you know, that, that, that property is probably already being used in terms of leverage for the nursing home support scheme or the fair deal scheme, as it's known. Um, so that can't be used. But in terms, you know, if it's going to be vacant, there's more to be done in terms of, using it as social housing so you know doesn't have to be sold um but it could be it could be tenanted it could be rented um you know and then, then we look at like we talk about the, the difficulties in delivering social housing and we talk about and i i don't actually mean we when we talk about when i say we i don't mean you and i yeah. i talk about the, it's the narrative that's out there in relation to social housing and you can't get tenants for these units part of the reason you can't get tenants for some units is because they're not habitable they're you know you wouldn't you wouldn't put your worst enemy in it um because there's antisocial behavior and you know that that narrative of ghettoization and again and anybody who's ever heard me talk about it will be rolling their eyes at this point uh, including you um but it's you know, that's never about the properties. It's never about the people. Yeah. It's about the complete and utter lack of services um, in those areas. I mean, I grew up in, in social housing. My, you know, parents were tenant purchasers um, in, a, in a social housing development. You know, and we knew what we, like on reflection, we knew what we didn't have. We, we knew not to need to go to the doctor all that often because, you know, the doctors weren't any great shakes. Um, you know, we knew what kind of school we were getting, um, you know, and, and it's like, if you don't have the supports that are needed, if you don't have what is expected in a housing development in, um, in a more affluent area, then of course it's going to, create societal problems. If you don't have quality education, if you don't have community healthcare networks, if you don't have community policing, if you don't have mental health supports, if you don't have social care supports, uh, if you don't have elder supports, then how can you possibly have a livable community? So our recommendation, our, our policy uh, number 10 is about the investment in those services and those infrastructures to support all housing developments, but to have a particular focus on social housing developments because the narrative around social housing developments equals 
ghettos is just plain wrong. And the, the narrative that you have to have mixed developments, so private uh, owners and private tenants can somehow gentrify social housing tenants is just plain insulting. Um, so, you know, we need that investment because all the evidence suggests that it's got nothing, as I said, to do with the people or the houses and everything to do with the supports that it lacks. Well, that's it. I mean, as, as a fellow product of uh, social housing, you know, and, and, a, and a single single tenure social housing uh, estate, um, it is to do with, uh, yeah, it is, it, it's to do with the support and the services and education and expectations. And I think we need to move away from this concept of social housing as residual housing. So it's the lowest point that you can reach almost. Do you know what I mean? It, it seems to be that sort of narrative where, okay, well, this will do for you. Yeah. As a um, and vibrant communities of um, you know, low, low income, no income, medium income households, that the, the, the private market has, has failed in delivering what is really a public good. That's very, very, very clear. And to continue, I think, pushing that, that narrative and that, um, that discussion that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll build more houses, we'll build more houses, we'll build more houses and affordable in inverted commas um, isn't going to provide for a cohort that um, that can't engage with that system. It doesn't make sense. We need decent, decent, decent social housing and social housing was well built. Um, you know, I mean, we're both from places now where I think an ex, an ex corpo house for want of a better word is about 400,000, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, these are now desirable uh, places to live because they're really well-built houses, you know. Um, but it's that it's that thing of that it's somewhere where people don't want to live. I think I think we need to move away from that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like I, I do get het up about it. But I mean, for anybody who is interested in the, in the history of how you know social housing became residual housing and I think that's a really good term for it um you know pr uh, Professor Tony Fahey and uh, Michelle Norris have both done incredible work in this area and in fact actually uh, Michelle Norris had a really interesting podcast a couple of years ago uh, she did for RT Brainstorm on it's a 10 minute thing on um that did that kind of evolution from you know workers housing uh, in rural Ireland um, you, uh, after the the kind of the, the land reform act came in kind of late 1800s to this kind of housing for poor people mm. um, and a lot of it was to do with how the the right to buy your own home as a council tenant came in and how that was impacted and yes it is one of the best um wealth transfers you know that we've seen it also meant that for those who couldn't afford even that very low purchase price um that they were the poorest of the poor mm -hmm. so social housing then became tied into poverty housing um and it's it's suffered the reputation from that um 
Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the area you grew up in um, might be going for 400,000 because it's really well built. <laughs> the area I grew up in isn't. I can assure you of that. Um, but again, I mean, it's a, it is about putting in the, the services and the infrastructure and the support that's needed. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. When, when I think back, you know, you could still walk, when you could walk to town, you can, there's a church, there's shops, there's a Eastern Health Board. I mean, there were no private schools, to be fair, I suppose, but, you know, you had a mixture of, of, of schools on your doorstep and you had older folks housing within the community as well which you, you don't see that anymore. And nothing was behind railings. That's a really big thing. I don't understand why every new housing development now has to be behind railings. So I, I do need to work up a policy proposal, I think, for that um, to stop that because I can't figure it out. For the life of me, I can't figure out why everything is now behind a railing. So, but it, it, yeah, as you said, to kind of show that this is, um, this is a private development possibly, I'm not sure. Things. Do you want to do you want to do a bit on the data? Do you think, or did we? Do I? You know how I feel about it, and I know we have gone well over our, our usual a lot of time for our podcasts. Um, but it it's fundamental. If you are kidding yourself about where your starting point is, then of course you're not going to see the urgency in the housing crisis. If you think you're doing more than you are, then of course you're not gonna feel the need to do more again. Um, so, you know, we know, and like it was, there was a report by Mary Daly back in, 2019 was a very big year for reports, but there was a report by Mary Daly back in 2019 for the European Commission. And she described the, the homelessness data in Ireland as statistical obfuscation, if not corruption. That's damning. Mm. That's absolutely damning. Um, you know, and, and but it can be applied across the board. Uh, so, you know, we know in terms of, of data on homelessness, it doesn't account for obvious things that it, may, it maybe can't account for, like couch surfers or people living with family or friends, because how do you count that? But it doesn't account for you know as it as it used to households that are temporarily accommodated in owned or accommodation that's owned by local authorities there was a, a huge kind of expose done on on that um because Louth county council said that they, they thought it was unfair and they went to the papers over it and they were absolutely right to do so um but when that happened which would have been 2018 2019 uh there was an estimate of about 660 households taken off the homelessness data at that time. Um, so, you know, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And there is, um, again, for anybody who, who might care to look it up, there is a typography that should be put in, that should be brought in. Uh, it's the ethos typography. It's a European um, mechanism for counting homelessness. Um, and I think, you know, if we were to use it, we would see an explosion in our homelessness data, but at least we'd know what we have. At least we'd be starting at the right figures. Um, you know, the count, the count that we have, uh, which is about 8,000 now, it's based on people accessing emergency homelessness accommodation at a particular week in the month. So it doesn't account for rough sleepers or any of those other things that I mentioned there earlier. Um, in terms of, of social housing and the waiting lists, we know that they're absolute, like they're, they're a work of fiction. Um, you know, the official number says that it's, it, the, the data or that the, sorry, the number of households 
um, in need of social housing has decreased by about 30,000. An actual fact, sorry, since 2016, an actual fact it's gone up by about that amount um, because it was 90,600 um, and it's, it, it should be around, uh, around about 120,000 um, because what has happened in relation to that is that social housing waiting lists don't count housing assistance payment, so it doesn't get count for any of the 60,000 households or nigh on 60,000 households um, that are on the housing assistance payment. It doesn't count anybody in receipt of uh, the rental accommodation scheme, sorry, that, that's housed under the rental accommodation scheme, um, but it, it does count rent supplement. There's a huge, there was a huge push when HAP came in to transfer households from rent supplement to HAP. Nothing has happened for those households other than their payment has changed name, but they may still be in the same house. Um, you know, so and but they're they're no longer on the waiting list. And I I do when I look at this data, I do wonder if they know that, if they know that they're they're not counted as being on the waiting list anymore. And I don't care what uh, anybody says HAP is a temporary form of accommodation, full stop. There's oh, it is. Absolutely. I mean, but the, the rationale for it is, you know, we went from social housing provision to social housing solutions and HAP is deemed to be a social housing solution. And if you're getting a social housing solution, you're not you're no longer deemed to be in need of social housing and you're out. But the numbers, the data, again, back to the evidence, the data on HAP again is a, a complete work of fiction. So, you know, up to 2020, um, to the end of 2020, there were 80,827 households started on HAP, right? So 80,827 HAP starts. That's included in a report um, on rebuilding Ireland um, and on social housing construction. So under what, what they term the total cumulative social housing delivery, the figure is given as 80,827 but it doesn't give the exits. So when you go to a different report by the same department published at the same time, uh, you see that under the HAP Exchequer Spend uh, Landlord Payments, and that's actually the name of the report, um, 59,821 households were in receipt of HAP as at the end of mm. 2020. So that means there's a gap yeah. of about 20,000 households there's, there's 20,000 exits, 26% of the starts have failed. That's what that means. So HAP is absolutely not a long-term social housing solution. Um, and then we have the construction reports and they consistently duplicate outputs because they count construction starts, they count enforcement, or sorry, not enforcement, commencement um, and completion depending on what you look at, you're double counting the, the data. So we need a housing strategy that's based on evidence that actually stands up because we will never reach a destination of providing housing for all if we're starting in the wrong space. No, I mean, if you look at those ethos categories, rooflessness, which is without shelter of any kind, as in sleeping roof, there's houselessness. So you do have a place to sleep, but it's temporary either in institutions or some form of shelter. You're living in insecure housing so that you're either threatened with severe exclusion 
maybe due to insecure tenancies, eviction, domestic violence, or you're living in inadequate housing, maybe a caravan or an illegal campsite, in unfit housing or in extreme, extreme overcrowding. If we were to get a genuine, accurate number for the amount of people in Ireland living in one, two, three or four of those um, that number, I think, would be. I don't. I don't. I don't think any of us can really gauge how huge a figure that would actually be. At least it would be accurate. Well, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose maybe that's the point to leave it on as as evidence based <laughs> policy <laughs> analysts. Yes, <laughs> at least it would be accurate. It would be correct. Uh, thank you very very much, Kat. Um, that was very enjoyable. I think we've we've completely pulled it apart and put it back together. <laughs> thank you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, any topics that you would like us to explore or discuss, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.